This has been a long year. A year of uncertainty, struggle, pain. We've watched a virus take countless lives. People we knew, people we loved. Jobs have been lost. Businesses have shut down. And churches have been forced to close their doors. We've witnessed division on an unprecedented level. Cities filled with violence. Streets filled with protesters. And we felt the sting of racism. The deep heartache of hate. There have been times where it's been difficult to see the hand of God. But even in the darkest of moments, He has been there. Faithful. Present. Powerful. As a new year begins, we stand on a simple truth. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings as eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint. We don't know what this new year will hold, but we know that it's held by a God whose mercies are new every morning. This is where we place our trust. This is the truth on which we stand. This is our hope for the new year. Welcome to Hydrant Online. We're, we're so glad that you're beginning this new year with us. We're excited for the things that are coming in the next couple of months as we are working behind the scenes to get ready to come back live and to go streaming live. And, and we look forward to being able to see you in those times. But as we, as we continue into this new year, we continue online, we continue to be safe, we continue to prioritize the health and life of our people and our community. I love this season. I love really any season that we give ourselves permission to start over, to, to begin again. In, in any normal season, a lot of us would be coming at the new year carrying wounds of the last year, carrying losses or disappointments. And, and this is a season where we kind of give ourselves permission to say goodbye to say goodbye to things we've lost, to hurts, to wounds, even, sometimes even to relationships, so that we can begin again. Others of us would be coming to this day from a, from a place of momentum and celebration and gratitude, and it, and it gives us a way to kind of reignite our motivation and continue to be and, and do our best in the new year. I've said this before, on, on average in America, half of us Half of us make resolutions for the new year. We resolve to be our best. Some of the most common have to do with losing weight or stopping smoking or drinking or, or lowering our screen time, things like that. And the trouble is that really 
only about 8% of us will be living into that new life a year from now. We'll set a resolution. We'll set a commitment. Half of us will give up on those within two weeks. And it continues to dwindle over the course of a year and until only about 8% of us make a real difference in our lives by resolving anything in a new year. Now, I think there are lots of reasons that happens. Sometimes we make goals that are too big. We, we make these lofty goals that we just aren't able to follow through, and we don't think about the small steps along the way, and we want to we lose 50 pounds in two weeks, and when we step on the scale and we're up one, we give up. That's another, we just give up pretty easily. And we, sometimes we set resolutions that, that aren't really built on true desires. We have these expectations. We let culture tell us what our body should look like, and so we resolve to look like that, or we, we let culture tell us what we should be doing and how we should be earning and, and what we should accomplish or buy or achieve, and we set goals based on those expectations or the expectations of other people instead of what God has put in us to pursue. Sometimes we just have little patience or forgiveness for ourselves and our shortcomings, our failures, our setbacks, and we aren't able to persevere because we aren't able to give ourselves a little grace. Sometimes we just don't plan. We have the goal, but we have no plan for achieving the goal. We don't know what it will take to get from here to there. Sometimes we go it alone. We don't have support. We don't share our resolutions. We don't get involved with other people pursuing the same things, or, or we have little accountability. Sometimes we just don't celebrate small victories. And, and all of these are important things for, for progress, but I think there's a greater underlying problem that, that we don't talk about. And it's that most of our resolutions, when we go to a new year and we make resolutions, they're about us. They're about us and, and only us and little connection to other people or for other people. And they're built on this understanding that is spoken to us by a dominant worldview that says life is only for winners. The good life in this world is for winners. And, it, and these resolutions and this perspective on life, it, it promises us that with the right formulas, we can control our health and wealth and happiness. It makes promises of safety and power. But as we come to the end of 2020 and we look out into this new year, it did something to change to change how we are entering a new year. You see, 2020, if it did anything, it exposed the inability of this dominant version of reality to keep its promises. It doesn't keep its promises. The pandemic exposed the fragility of our health and the uncertainty of our wealth. It, it exposed how thin our facades of happiness really are. You see, many of us were forced to face the experiences of friends that, that make them daily feel unsafe as they walk down the street or go for a jog or go to the grocery store. Any denial of racism's grip on our culture was shattered. Our isolation exposed how radically divided we are as families, as communities, as churches, and a nation. We all felt a little unsafe just going to the grocery store, or eating at a restaurant. 
We felt the ache as we endured or watched as those we love endured job loss or food insecurity, disappointment, loneliness, depression. We've all grieved this year the loss of someone we loved. We've all seen too much needless death this year. We have seen the underside of this dominant view of reality that tells us the good life is for winners and the underside is violent and abusive and controlling. And it's been a bit unsettling. We've all been marched out of our normal routines of our normal lives and, and rhythms of worship and, our, and our, even our sense of security. Many of us have felt unsafe anywhere other than our own homes. We felt like our health was threatened. Others, depending on the color of their skin, have felt unsafe just to be out in their communities. It's as if we're in some kind of exile Exile, not a term we use a lot. It has to do with being taken from where we belong and put into a new place, conquered, robbed of our normality, our, our sense of self-actualization. In times of exile, we can no longer linger in the delusion of self-sovereignty. When, when things are going our way, when we seem to have some sense of control, we can delude ourselves. We can live with this delusion that if I put the right formula together, that I'll get the results I want every time. That if I can eat right, exercise enough, control the intake and the output, then I will be whatever weight I want to be. That if I save more, spend less, build up wealth, then I'll have happiness. And we create these formulas and we think that we can manipulate or manage the minutia of our lives. But when we get into exile... We can't live with that delusion anymore. We see that even if you've taken care of your body, that it may not mean health. Even if you manage finances well for years, one year can deplete all those savings. When we enter into exile, we face a choice. Some of us choose to embrace the, the chaos and uncertainty with foreboding, with fear, and, and ultimately a constant anxiety that robs us of our ability to see things that are real. We only see the uncertainty as negative. We are only waiting for the other shoe to drop. We are only waiting for the next catastrophe. And so then we create this false idea that if we can just roll the calendar past 2020, then 2021 will be something different just because it's a new day. And when that comes crumbling, we're thrust right back into this anxiety. Others, others will choose to embrace the chaos and the uncertainty with hope and courage and ultimately the faith that helps us to see things that really are real. 
You see, the choice is ours. Many will rely on the stories of control and power. They will look for certainty and security, but they will be left with anxiety when control and violence and fear does not deliver on its promises of health and wealth and happiness. If we can look with eyes of faith, if we can remember our God and whose we are, then we will not see chaos but possibility. The uncertainty means that anything good could happen tomorrow. God could break in in any remarkable way next week. This year is full of possibility, not reasons to fear, because it's so uncertain. It means that there is all kinds of room for good to break through. We must choose. We'll see reasons to fear or reasons to hope. If we can look with eyes of faith, it will change everything. But there are competing stories. There are competing versions of reality. And the dominant version that we hear in our culture every day is that the good life is for winners, for the strong, and it will make promises of safety and wealth and health and happiness. But one microscopic organism that we call COVID-19 has exposed this version of reality as false. And Jesus came. Jesus came for the purpose of helping us to see again what was real. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says he, he came to those paralyzed by the demands of the, the over-punctilious requirements of some forms of religion that had been diverted from the claims of God and neighbor. And by the comprehensive ideology of the Roman government that wanted to eliminate the God of the Bible from its horizon. Does this sound familiar? Torn between overzealous, over-controlling religion and a government that tries to push God out? Does it feel like we are stuck in these two extremes? As the story goes, Jesus came among those frozen in narratives of anxiety and alienation, of slavery and fear. He authorized a departure into a new world of God's governance. He appeared abruptly and said, repent, turn, change, switch your view for the new governing at hand. Then he acted out this new world view, this new perspective, this new definition of reality as he welcomed and he forgave and he taught and he cleansed and he healed and he empowered and he fed. Jesus came with a mandate from the creator to bring creation back to what it was intended to be. He is the God of neighbors, the God of love, the God who invites us to be a part of his story and to see things as he does, to see the real version of reality despite what we often see around us that says only the powerful win, only the wealthy win. <clears throat> Jesus initiated his ministry with this proclamation in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he has anointed me. But he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord's favor leads to good news to the poor, to the proclamation of freedom, to the setting free of the oppressed. But that is going to be bad news for the oppressors and the wealthy and the controlling and the manipulative and those who live by the worldview that says only, only winners deserve the good life. So as much as I love the opportunity to reinvent ourselves, to make resolutions in this new year, I want to invite us to think a little differently as we enter into 2021. And we're going to unpack this a little bit over the next couple of weeks. But I want to begin first with this idea that we just need to give our permi- ourselves permission to resolve less. To resolve less. I mean, if you must make resolutions, make resolutions to do all the good that you can. To, to do no harm and to walk closely with Jesus. If we were to live by these three simple rules, these simple resolutions, not only would our our lives change, our homes would change, our communities and neighborhoods would change. Our world would change if we did all the good we can, refused to do harm, and walked closely with Jesus. It's more important than losing those 10 pounds. It's more important than any of the other resolutions we would make. So maybe this year we resolve less. We resolve less to rely on our own strength and determination to make our lives better. We resolve less to rely upon the dominant versions of reality with its codes and its prescriptions for a better life, for health and wealth and happiness. And instead of resolving, we will reflect. So we're going to resolve less and reflect more. Spend time reflecting on the beauty and the good in life. Spend time reflecting on truth and hope. Our, Our emotions will follow our thoughts. If we are looking for and thinking about ways that life could go wrong, of catastrophes that could happen, of things that we could do, the way that people can disappoint us, we will look for those things, we will feel those things, and act on those things and see those things. But if we would focus, reflect, think on things that are true and hopeful and beautiful and good, then our emotions will begin to to live into those things and feel those things and we will begin to see those things and experience those things. Because life is terrible and beautiful all at once. We will lean into one or the other and it depends not on resolutions but on our reflection. Reflect more on, on our choices and perspectives. Have you taken time to question what you think in this last year? This last year, we faced one of the most divisive seasons in an election that I've ever seen in my life. And in this season, I wonder how many of us took time not to question or challenge the choices, perspectives, and beliefs of others, but to challenge and question the way we think, to hold our thinking, our choices, our perspectives up to Scripture, 
and to see what Jesus would do in our situation with our life, with our resources, with our day-to-day, with our job. How might he raise our kids? How might he love our neighbors? How might he participate in our church? How might he join in our community? Have you challenged the way you think, the way you believe lately? Maybe in this year, take time to reflect. Reflect on your choices and perspectives. Allow your thinking to grow and expand. Just ask more questions. We have a tendency to feel like we need to be the people that can fix it or have answers. The conversation about any number of things, political, religious, around the 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 pandemic come up and there are answers from a hundred different directions and everyone is ready to spout what they read or saw. But few of us take the time to listen and ask questions. Maybe before you make a decision, as you enter into a situation, choose to ask four or five questions, maybe of yourself before of anyone else. Choose to try to understand more this year instead of know more or decide more. As we choose to resolve and reflect, or resolve less and reflect more, I want to invite you to remember. Remember. Remember who our God is. Over and over throughout this scriptures, we are invited to remember our God, to remember who he is, to remember the days that are holy, to remember the things that he has done, to remember the stories of the way that he has broken in. When we have a deep memory, we have an exuberant hope. So we need to be able to remember who our God is. We need to remember that our God is the one who calls us into the unknown as he called Abraham, inviting him to follow full of promise and hope, promises that took a lifetime to fulfill and a lifetime of ups and downs and faithfulness as his faith grew. We need to remember that that our God is the God of slaves. He is the God of slaves, the God who says that no one deserves to be owned, possessed by another person in any way, shape, or form. And he sets the slave free and continues to invite us to be a part of ending that kind of oppression wherever it's found. We need to remember that our God is a God of love, that his power, that his holiness is his love. And the moment of revelation, as he revealed who he was at his core, it was the self-sacrificing love of laying down his life, his body broken for us, his blood spilt for us. He gave everything. He is the God of love. He is the God of the poor. He is the God of the captive, the blind, the oppressed. He is the God of neighborliness. I don't even know for sure that's a good word or an actual word, but we're going to use it. He is the God of all neighborliness. He is the one who constantly turns his people toward his neighbor. 
toward our neighbor. He, he says in, in Genesis that he blesses Abraham to be able to bless all the nations. He blesses Israel to bless all the nations. He sent his disciples into all the world. It's not just about us receiving blessing and being our best so that we can have our best life. It's about being our best for those around us. And he is meant to turn us toward our neighbors. We need to remember the story of reality that he tells. It's a story of connection. From the very beginning of creation, he connected humanity together, man and woman. He connected us. He connected us to creation with responsibility for the care of this organism we call earth. And the better care we take care of it, the better care it will take of us. It is a responsibility of connection. We are connected to one another. And the way that we treat others will affect the way that our communities, our world takes shape. It's not about our power. It's not about our violence. It's not about our strength or our ability to control or grab or obtain more. You see, excessive, any excess in Scripture is understood to come at the expense of our neighbors. So the we are taking from others to accumulate more and more. And it comes from this perspective of scarcity that's a part of this dominant worldview today that says that there's not enough, so you have to grab and protect what you have. But the, the God of all creation, the one who made it all, said, no, there is abundance. And when you begin to turn toward your neighbor, share the resources together, then, then there is an abundance he demonstrates this over and over again in Scripture. We see this in the, in the Old Testament as Israel is wandering in the desert with, with nothing to eat. And he gives them bread from heaven. There is bread literally on the ground. Birds that fly into the camp. God begins to demonstrate the abundance when they take just what they need for the day. When they begin to take more than they need, it rots. There is enough. And as we begin to share among the community, share among our neighbors, to make sure that those around us have their needs met as well. As we begin to look at them as family, not as strangers, the abundance of God kicks in and there's enough. It happens in the New Testament as Jesus takes just a little lunch of a few pieces of fish and a few pieces of bread and he feeds thousands and thousands and thousands of people. The willingness to share, to take care of our neighbor, because we are connected in the abundance of God's grace. And this leads to hope. The story of reality is one of hope. It continues to move us forward. It continues to give us strength. It continues to guide our thinking and our behaving. We don't act in fear. We don't act in fear because hope is greater than fear. We shouldn't be saying, I'm just afraid that. I'm just afraid if, as we make decisions, we should be acting in the, the hope and the belief and the conviction that good is coming and that we can be a part of it. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember who we are. 
We are children of God. We are children of the Creator. We are neighbors to one another. Those who receive and give good to one another as neighbors. We are those who cry out. And I want to just stop here for a minute. We are those who cry out. We cry out in Egypt when we are enslaved, crying out for freedom and hope. We are those who cried out in the desert when we were hungry and desperate and cast out and alone. We are those who cry out in our time of trouble. We are those who cry out in exile. We are those who cry out as Jesus is walking through our towns and streets. And in Egypt, he comes as our rescuer. In the desert, he comes as the God who sees us. In our time of trouble, he comes as the one with strength and salvation. He is the one who walks us into and then out of exile as we learn and grow into who we were created to be. And he is the one who stops and hears us when we cry. Mark 10 46 to 52 is this remarkable story about a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is blind and he is reduced to begging just to be able to eat. And he sits along the side of a busy street and begs every day. And he hears, he hears even before Jesus gets close, that Jesus is coming down his street and he begins to cry out. He begins to cry out for help. He begins to cry out for justice. He begins to cry out for his knees. He's shouting, and the scriptures tell us that those around him tried to quiet him down, but he wouldn't be silenced. He cried out. He cried out in desperation, and Jesus heard him. Jesus had everyone else stop and brought the man in front of him and said, what is it that you want from me? And he said, I want to see. Jesus told him that his faith had healed him. Go and receive his sight. There are those in our world who sit along the road crying out. They are deprived of basic needs. They've been denied connection and they have been silenced. And God hears their cries. So should we. We should join in giving voice to those who have been robbed and silenced, whose voices have been taken away over the course of years and decades and centuries. We should be standing with the, the children and the elderly, standing with women and people of color and everyone who has been denied a voice, denied their needs being met, denied connection, denied participation in the community at its fullest. And for some of us, it's hard for us to see. We have felt as though the silence was affirmation of things done well. We, we assumed that because we couldn't hear those cries or because someone else had silenced them, that the cries weren't happening, that the injustice wasn't happening, that there weren't people in our communities who were going without their needs. But in this year, of all years, those voices have been exposed. Those voices have been amplified. And the church, the church should not sing songs of praise unless it can speak up with the voices of those who have been silenced. 
We are called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And there are times that our shouts have been so deafening and our lives so silent that we have failed to do justice and have had no humility. We must be willing to join our voices as others who cry out, as those who have cried out desperately in our sin and our failure, and join with those who cry out, those whose needs have not been met, those who have denied, been denied connection, those who have been silenced. We join our voices with them as we remember who we are. And we remember whose we are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 reads this way. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? He's in you. You have received him from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We are meant to understand to whom we belong, to who we are, who our God is, as we remember, as we lean into the deep memory, we find an exuberant hope. And that exuberant hope should lead to action. It should lead to an offer of bread to the hungry. It should lead to clothes for the naked. It should lead to a visit to the prisoner, the trapped, the shut-in. It should lead to lending our voices to children and women in prisons and prisoners and elderly and people of color and whoever may have been silenced. It should lead to freedom for each one. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this story. He says, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and his goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So we go into this new year. We go into this new year resolving less. I mean, sure, lose weight, get the job, stop smoking, start journaling, whatever. But we resolve less to rely on ourselves, our own ability to accomplish life, our own ability to create health and wealth and happiness. And instead, we remember more. We remember who we are and whose we are. We remember who our God is 
and what he's really about. And we live and share hope in all that is possible in this crazy, unpredictable world that comes with no guarantees. So I want to encourage you, if you have to resolve something, if you resolve anything, resolve this, to love God and your neighbor greatly. Let's pray. Father, it's an unusual year. Usually in this year, I'm talking about how we can follow your teaching into caring for our bodies and our minds and our souls and our emotions and our relationships. And and those things are so important. God, in this year, we see so clearly, we see so clearly just how false that dominant view of reality is that says that we can control those things, that we can manipulate those things, that tells us that there is not enough to go around, that tells us that that our connection to one another and the planet isn't really important, that tells us that you're not real, you're not there, or that you don't care. So God, in these days, would you help us to see what is possible, to see you at work in the uncertainty and in the mystery and the possibility, and we lean in with faith to see what is real, to live a life that shares the bread, that connects deeply with others, that gives voice to the voiceless, that stands with those around us. May we love you well and love our neighbor well. In Jesus' name, amen.